everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Kenneth L. Marcus, the president and general counsel of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law in Washington, D.C. Here to talk about his new book, The Definition of Antisemitism, published this year by Oxford University Press. Ken, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Ken, maybe tell us briefly, what is the Louis Brandeis Center? Uh, what kind of work is it involved in, and how did it come into being? Sure. We are a Washington, D.C.-based public interest advocacy group. We were established just in 2011 to advance the civil and human rights of the Jewish people and promote justice for all. Our main focus is fighting campus anti-Semitism through legal means, lawsuits, legal advocacy, and public policy. So you're kind of a lawyer scholar, right? You say in the book there's sort of a debate in the Jewish community. Should we study anti-Semitism in an academic way or should we be out combating it? What's the balance on that question for you? Well, my background is practical. After 10 years with private law firms as a litigation partner, I went into the government and I was the head of the federal civil rights agency that's responsible for protecting the civil rights of all American students, college students, university students, K-12 students. I then was staff director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So my background is in civil rights enforcement. And now I spend much of my time in the trenches, as it were, uh, fighting to protect Jewish students from anti-Semitism and other students from other forms of bias. At the same time, while my focus is very much practical and very much I'm concerned about what's actually happening today on campuses and how we can make things better, I also believe that it is not enough just to be activist. You have to have a basis in research, a basis in fact, a basis in theory, basis in in understanding the world. Um, and unfortunately, the research that we need to find as a basis for supporting students and colleges isn't already out there. You can't just pull up a book and read it, which frankly is why I decided I had to write it. The book explaining the meaning of anti-Semitism and how it applies in practice didn't really exist, and that's why I wrote The Definition of Anti-Semitism. Right. So the book is called The Definition of Anti-Semitism. You say that getting to an accurate and proper definition of anti-Semitism is a crucial task. Why? Uh, because that is the obstacle facing both university administrators and government administrators. It was only a few years ago that the federal government acknowledged, and, and I was the head of the Office for Civil Rights at the time, only a few years ago that the federal government acknowledged that it would protect the civil rights of Jewish students in colleges and universities. That was, uh, that was 2004, a decade ago, and it remained controversial until 2010. So it's now just five years since the Education and Justice Department uh, recommitted themselves to protecting Jewish students from anti-Semitism. But the problem is that they don't seem to understand what anti-Semitism is. They'll understand a swastika. They'll understand if a rock is thrown through a Hillel window. 
But anything that involves Israel in any fashion will look more political to some administrators. At any rate, there will be confusion about where the line is, often politically charged, which stands in the way of effective action. Right. So it seems that there are some people who are hesitant to come up with an explicit explicit definition of anti-Semitism. You know, they either want to eyeball it or take it on a case by case basis. Why is that not enough? It's not enough because we need clarity in order to be consistent, in order to have data that can be compared across institutions, states and countries. And in order to make sure that if a student says something has happened to me which is hurtful and wrong, there is a standardized basis for responding. It's also important for people who are accused of anti-Semitism for them to know where the lines are and what shouldn't be crossed. Could you uh, tell us briefly where does the where does the term anti-Semitism come from? Well, it comes from a German uh, term that was uh, developed in the 1870s and principally popularized by a journalist named Wilhelm Marr. Ironically, he was someone who very strongly disliked and was threatened by Jews. Uh, He was uh, suspicious of old-fashioned anti-Jewish religious bigotry. Uh, But he thought that the hatred of Jews should be put on a more scientific foundation based not on religious prejudice, but instead on racial ideas. So he developed the word anti-Semitism and formed a league of anti-Semites in order to have a term that more correctly explained the basis for his Uh, animosity against Jews. And that racial anti-Semitism ended up becoming cataclysmically uh, successful in the war against Jews in his country, Germany, in the ensuing decades. Mm -hmm. So sort of given that early history of the term, do you think the word anti-Semitism is one that we could or should replace? Uh, You know, replacements might be Jew hatred or Judeophobia, you know, this is not a semantic matter. I don't I don't think you're saying you're saying this has real world implications. Well, I mean, the word is tainted. It's uh, tainted in all sorts of ways. The most obvious one being that it was developed by an anti-Semite in order to help him uh, in advancing his particular form of uh, anti-Jewish ideology. Uh, So if it could be replaced by a better word, then yes, I would say go ahead and replace it. Uh, The problem is that there really isn't a word that it doesn't have other kinds of problems. You mentioned Jew hatred, and some people would prefer to use Jew hatred. But Jew hatred is fairly narrow, and some forms of animus against Jews aren't really hatred, at least in the ordinary sense of, of that word. Judeophobia is narrower still in that it at least implies a psychological phobia. Well, it may or may not be the case that all antagonism against Jews is based on uh, phobic um, impulses. So I have to say that the word anti-Semitism is a very problematic term, uh, but I don't think that we have anything that's really better. Mm-hmm. Um. 
you say you say in the book we do not have a shared definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, have we ever? Meaning, is this a new problem? Uh, is is defining anti-Semitism a new problem? And if it is, what has changed? That's interesting. When I first started this research, I thought that it might be a new problem and that it had uh, emerged uh, in the post-1967 context in which there were these uh, conflicts over uh, the Middle East that played themselves out uh, with respect to attitudes towards, uh, towards Jews and Israel. Uh, but it uh, turned out, um, as I researched further, that there have always been debates over the meaning of anti-Semitism uh, over time, uh, often based on various uh, ideologies and, and views and conflicts of the of the time. So this is this is really some, not something new. It's a continuing challenge. Mm-hmm. And you say in the book that we used to be sort of obsessed with etiology, sort of what causes anti-Semitism. Um, although maybe now we're, we're less concerned with finding out those root causes. Is that right? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I use the word obsessed, whether that was the best uh, term, but I would say that for a generation of scholars, uh, half a century ago, the principal question in anti-Semitism scholarship was, how did we get to the point of murdering six million Jews. What is the cause of anti-Semitism? What led to the specific distinctive horrors uh, of the Holocaust and more generally of anti-Semitism? That was a major question for anti-Semitism scholarship a generation ago. It remains an important question, uh, but in more recent years, the question of definition has loomed larger and larger. Uh, within the scholarly community. There have been uh, a number of attempts at coming up with an international working definition. Could you tell us briefly about some of those and what are their strengths and weaknesses? Uh, Sure. A little over a decade ago, the European Union went through a couple of efforts to come up with a uniform definition. Uh, leading uh, finally to the so-called UMAC or EUMC working definition, also known as the International Working Definition of Anti-Semitism. That um, document, uh, while it is no longer uh, officially used by the European Union Monitoring Center on Racism and Xenophobia, which developed it, nor by its successor agency, the Federal Rights Agency, had become very influential worldwide. And the the key to the international working definition is that it's based on conduct more than on mental states. And it gives several specific examples of what is anti-Semitic conduct, and in particular, what is anti-Semitism with regard to Israel. That definition has become, in some respects, even more important over the last few years, because while the European Union doesn't seem to be using it, the United States Department of State has adopted a substantially identical version of that definition. And so uh, what, what, what is the strength and what is the weakness of that definition? Um, The definition gives very specific examples, and in general, they are a fleshed-out version of Natan Sharansky's old 3D test. Sharansky, 
the Russian refusenik who became an Israeli parliamentarian and human rights crusader, argued that anti-Israel hatred isn't always anti-Semitic, but sometimes it is. And in general, one should look closely at hatred of Israel, which is based on demonization of the Jewish state, delegitimization, or the use of double standards. And he explained that by using these tools, these three Ds of his, uh, one could discern examples in which what appears to be political objections to the state of Israel are in fact carryovers from age-old attitudes towards the Jewish people. What is the argument that anti-Semitism is not, that, sorry, that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism? And why do you not find that argument persuasive? But there were two categorical arguments uh, that I looked at and considered. One is the argument that anti-Zionism is never anti-Semitic. The other is the argument that anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitic. And neither one of them is, is particularly persuasive, nor is either one of them supported by the empirical literature. For those who argue that anti-Zionism is never anti-Semitic, uh, there are lots of challenges. One is the psychological studies showing that people who hold strongly negative views towards Israel very strongly uh, correlate with those who have strongly negative views towards Jews. Um, in addition, there are any number of examples in which it is fairly clear uh, historically that anti-Zionism has, in some periods and contexts, been a simple euphemism. Uh, for anti-Semitism, for instance, in some Cold War Soviet propaganda. So the argument that anti-Zionism is never anti-Semitic uh, is really implausible in light of our historical understandings and empirical research. So in constructing a definition of anti-Semitism, you say that there's a trade-off between sort of scholarly sophistication and, and usefulness, whether in court or legislation. What, what do you mean by that? What is the trade-off? There have been lots of definitions of anti-Semitism. Some of them are more practically useful, and some of them are more refined and sophisticated from a theoretical perspective. And my view is that it is entirely appropriate to have different tools for different jobs. Uh, if one is a practitioner trying to uh, compare levels of uh, hate crimes in different European countries, uh, then one might have uh, one kind of definition. If one is a scholar trying to explain uh, the way in which uh, myth or folklore operates, a different kind of uh, definition might make sense. What I've tried to do is to explain the conditions in which different kinds of definition are more effective 
And the criteria we should use for effective ways of understanding the words. Ken, can you give us a just a little bit of a sense of what what are some of the definitions that are at play? What what is the attitudinal model? What is the praxeological model? What what, what do you mean by those? Um, sure, by praxeological model, I'm referring to approaches that focus especially on conduct. So here I have in mind especially the international working definition and the State Department definition. Uh, by attitudinal approaches, I have in mind approaches like sociologist uh, Helen Fine. Uh, and then I also uh, discuss ideological definitions, such as that of uh, philosopher Slava Zizek, uh, or perhaps of uh, the understanding of anti-Judaism implicit in uh, the work of historian David uh, David Nuremberg. Each each approach has its place. Each approach has its limitations, uh, and the importance is to understand what we're, what one is trying to accomplish and to find uh, the the way that uh, meets one's needs. What should be our attitude towards anti-Semites? Uh, could you tell us about the debate you mentioned, uh, Slavoj Žižek, uh, and he sort of has a debate, it seems, but. Um, with Abe Foxman about Mel Gibson. So what's going on there? Yeah, there the question is whether one should consider anti-Semitism to be a uh, disease. Um, Abe Foxman, then the national director of the uh, Anti-Defamation League, um, seemed to let um, Mel Gibson off, perhaps a little lightly, with the notion that he was suffering from a disease, that he might get treatment and recover from it. But that model has various problems, um, including the fact that it seems to absolve uh, the patient from responsibility. Uh, if one has uh, anti-Semitic attitudes, it isn't as if one had simply... Uh, uh, contracted uh, certain germs as one might uh, cold or virus and one simply needs uh, uh, some sort of treatment or medication. Uh, Zizek uh, argues that uh, Gibson's anti-Semitism was an ideology that he had likely uh, picked up from his father, as it were, uh, but that he had the ability to overcome it not through some sort of um, uh, pseudo-psychiatric uh, 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 treatment, uh, but rather by coming to understand the ideological basis of his uh, views, uh, understanding them and moving beyond them. Let's talk about what's going, what's going on in the world. Uh, after reading your book, I'm aware that the question is anti-Semitism on the rise globally is actually not such a simple question. Um, and measuring it may not be so easy. It really depends on your definition. Is that right? Uh, I suppose it's right, although I'd have to say that um, globally, over the last uh, dozen or so years, um, under most definitions, the uh, extent of anti-Semitism really has significantly increased, uh, including in particular uh, the reported uh, violent crimes against Jewish people, especially in uh, in Europe. In the United States, it's harder. 
it's harder to evaluate the numbers because we don't have the same volume and more of the incidents that we do have are in a gray area. Right. So does it make sense to measure anti-Semitism by country the way we measure, you know, inflation or unemployment? So France has high levels of anti-Semitism. The U.S. has lower levels of anti-Semitism. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It's useful. It's valuable. I think you always have to look at the data with a grain of salt. Uh, the um, Anti-Defamation League uh, several months ago released what I think is the most comprehensive uh, country-by-country comparison of the levels of anti-Semitism. Um, to some extent, I suppose their, their work is, is a work in progress, as it, as it were, and one could quibble with some of the data. On the other hand, it is important. It is important to at least try to get our arms around that in order to ask questions like whether different countries have um, approaches to fighting anti-Semitism that work and that make sense. This is a big question right now throughout Europe. I think in the United States, we tend to think about the problems in France in particular. But there have been serious issues with anti-Semitism throughout uh, Europe. Uh, and real questions about whether European governments are tackling, tackling it in a, uh, in a serious way. So I think it's good to have um, cross uh, or transnational comparisons of data uh, so that we can uh, ask these hard questions. Mm-hmm. You cite a number of examples of recent occurrences uh, in which there's an event, usually an attack, uh, physical or verbal, and then there's the analysis of the event. So the media and the government have to decide whether or not to use the word anti-Semitism. It's kind of a strange cycle. Why do you think that cycle happens? You know, it's interesting. There's another scholar who would argue that this is something unique to anti-Semitism and that people are just unwilling to take Jew hatred or anti-Semitism seriously. And as a result, there are these continual arguments. Was it anti-Semitism? Was it not anti-Semitism? You shouldn't use the word anti-Semitism. You're exaggerating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said this doesn't happen with respect to racism, where everybody agrees what racism is. Um, Unfortunately, that's actually not the case. And what I showed in the book is that, in fact, Racism is as thoroughly contested as anti-Semitism. There's a notion of second order prejudice that has to do with uh, follow-up conflicts over whether an initial report is accurate or misleading. Uh, What we find is uh, whenever one has a biased incident, whether it's about Jews or blacks or other groups, there will often be a very heated debate about whether it was a bias or whether it was something else. There seems to be uh, right now in the Jewish press uh, a big concern with BDS, the BDS movement. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and is it and how is it anti-Semitic? That's the movement to boycott, divest from and or sanction Israel. Uh, some people argue that it developed out of the 2005 so-called call of Palestinian civil society uh, to uh, do these things to Israel until such times as its goals were met, having to do with, for instance, the uh, 
protection of the uh, human rights of Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, although I think it's pretty clear that efforts to boycott and divest from Israel go back well beyond 2005, certainly to the 2001 uh, so-called uh, Durban One United Nations Conference Against Racism. Uh, but even before 2001, there was a more or less continuous Arab League boycott going all the way back to the establishment of the State of Israel. And before the establishment of the State of Israel, there were efforts um, by the Arab League uh, to boycott uh, the uh, Zionists within uh, Palestine uh, mandate uh, for years before that. Uh, and before the Arab League, there were efforts uh, um, by Palestinian uh, Arabs to boycott uh, Jews in uh in uh, British Mandate Palestine. So efforts to boycott and divest from and sanction Israel uh, are older than the Jewish state itself. Um, one of the questions today is whether this effort should be viewed as, as a human rights effort on behalf of the Palestinian people, which may be appropriate or misguided, or whether it should be viewed as a form of hate. And what I've argued in this book, perhaps controversially, is that the BDS movement should not be seen as a human rights movement, but is in fact uh, simply another manifestation of anti-Semitism. Uh, it's not so much that everyone who supports the BDS movement is anti-Semitic. That's probably not the case. Uh, but the movement itself should be viewed as anti-Semitic based not only on the conscious intentions of some of its members, but also on unconscious attitudes as well as cultural means and the impact on Jewish identity. So there are several different reasons why I argue in this book uh, the BDS movement as a whole meets the definition of anti-Semitism, whether particular supporters of BDS are anti-Semitic or not. You started, you started the interview talking about uh, the work of the Brandeis Center. Um, why are college campuses such uh, hot spots um, in terms of anti-Semitism, or at least incidents that would be considered anti-Semitism under an expansive definition of anti-Semitism? Well, if you haven't been on a college campus recently, you would probably be surprised by that because many of us have long held ideals of the university as a kind of a bastion of rationality and tolerance. In fact, universities aren't just an example of institutions that sometimes succumb to anti-Semitism in the United States. Actually, here in the United States, University campuses are, in some cases, exceptions to what is a general rule. And the general rule is that in the United States, levels of anti-Semitism, thank God, are far less than they are in most parts of the world. On the other hand, on university campuses, what we're finding is an alarming recurrence of uh, incidents. It's not so much that most college students or college professors have anti-Semitic views. 
And it certainly isn't that universities are returning to the anti-Jewish quotas uh, of uh, bygone eras. Rather, the problem is that a small group of people with negative attitudes towards Jews in Israel are creating an ugly environment for many Jewish students on many campuses to the point where a report that we co-published with Trinity College earlier this year shows that 54% of Jewish American college students surveyed reported that they had personally experienced or witnessed anti-Semitism within just the last academic year. Now, to put it in perspective, I believe that this is still a great time to be a Jewish college student in the United States. Uh, I um, spend a lot of time traveling around the country on many college campuses, and and I really believe that this is one of the best times to be Jewish Um, However, it is reason for serious concern that we are no longer making the progress against this form of hate that we made for so many years and decades following the end of World War II. And it may be the case uh, not only that that progress is stopped, but that things are moving in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Well, Ken, Ken, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Um, Well, thank you for for that question. I guess what I would say is my hope is that this book will appeal not only to practitioners who are struggling with how most effectively to deal with anti-Semitism and scholars who are trying to develop definitions that they can use for their various research projects, but also for general readers who want to have a better understanding of how it is that this ancient evil has seemingly recurred continually over the generations and and centuries, and to understand what its uh, scope and limitations are. Further, my hope is that this can be for human rights uh, organizations like my own, the basis to provide a new understanding. There are many institutions, like, for instance, the University of California today, that are grappling with this question of what are the lines between what is anti-Semitic and what is not, what is appropriate and, and what is not. And I hope that this book can provide some clarity and support for those people of goodwill who are approaching this issue conscientiously. Great. Ken, I want, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is The Definition of Antisemitism, published this year by Oxford University Press. The author is Kenneth L. Marcus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.